Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. So I'm going to be completely honest, almost didn't do the podcast today. We had a pretty terrible, well, pretty terrible weekend overall. On Friday night, our dog Lily, who has been, she's an old girl. We got her when she was, we're guessing, six or seven years old. And at that time when we picked her up, just immediately fell in love with her, didn't care. We figured she was an older dog. If we got a couple of years out of it, we great. Well, she went on another 10 years, one of the most fantastic animals I have ever ever had the pleasure to be around, just a one-of-a-kind dog, and she, a very tough dog, so her hips were going, she was getting older, we were watching for signs to make sure she was comfortable, and Friday night took a, a terrible downturn, and on Saturday morning, we had to bring her into the vet to have her put to sleep, which absolutely sucked. Uh, this is the, if everybody remembers back in December, Molly, my, well, we call her my personal dog, because she kind of followed me around, she's my little blonde shadow. She went as well. This is the problem when you have dogs and you get a bunch of dogs at the same time and they're all older. You start realizing they start going at the same time. So it kind of compounds things. So I don't even think we were all completely over Molly going. And then we had to wake the kids up on Saturday morning and tell them to come down and say goodbye to Lily. So just awful weekend that night. She was like in terrible shape. Billy and I were taking turns like staying up with her. So, you know, it just gets you thinking, I wish to God they'd be able to breed some type of dog that could live as long as some of the tarantulas we keep. I would take a dog that would live 40 years in a heartbeat because when you get a good group of them, you don't want them to pass. So it was <laughs> it was pretty exhausting emotionally, physically. Uh, Billy's kind of a wreck. Hopefully, if she's listening to the podcast, she comes, sometimes listens to the podcast. I'm going to probably tell her to skip this part because she's still struggling with it. I am as well. I just, I grew up on a farm, so you kind of learn to compartmentalize some of this stuff and you know, talk about the good times, and she was really an absolutely amazing dog, and I don't know if this, how much this comes out, I mean, for folks in the podcast, there's a lot of folks listening to the podcast now that don't watch the videos, back in the day, my YouTube videos, the running joke was there was always dogs in the background of the videos clicking around, we had hardwood floors in our old house, and we used to do all the rehousings in the kitchen, and the dogs would be clicking around the background, and it kind of became like, a lot of folks were upset when we moved, and there were no more dogs in the video. They liked that part of it. We are huge, huge dog lovers. I mean, absolutely adore our animals. We try to take the best of care of them. We spend lots of money a year with vet visits, medication. I think that's why they live so darn long. We're guessing she was probably around anywhere from 16 to 17 years old. Molly was, I believe, right around 13 years old. So we're getting a, you know, a lot of time on them, which is great. But I think in a way it almost makes it more difficult when they when they pass. So that was how it started. And I will say I did not have a lot of motivation to hop on the computer and do the podcast. But I was like, as the morning went on, it's like, I, I've got to continue. We've got to go on. we got to, you know, keep going with things. And I felt a little bit better as I had my morning coffee. I'm like, all right, let's do this. And plus, it kind of gives me a chance to kind of acknowledge the dogs behind the scenes because those are the ones that, you know, I talk about how I go to my tarantula room for stress relief when I get home from a bad day at work and or, you know, something's going on. But that's not totally the case. A lot of times it's me sitting down on the couch with dogs on my lap. And uh, she was a beautiful, chubby little 65-pound uh, pit bull, just one of the cuddliest. And anybody out there that has kept pit bulls or you know has pit bulls knows how cuddly they can be and she would just get on your lap and try to dig into you she was the most aggressive aggressively affectionate dog i've ever had we called her the love goblin the love hippo Lilith Immaculate off the Cradle of Filth song. It's like every one of our dogs has 2,000 nicknames. But, yep, so she passed on Saturday morning, kind of bummed. There will be no replacing her. But, you know, eventually summer break is coming. I'm sure we'll probably go out and look for another dog. We usually have four in a given time. So we'll see how that goes. So 
enough of the sad talk. Let's get into a little uh, com- some comments on last week's podcast. Uh, that one, I got a bunch of emails over that one. Not necessarily bad ones. Just I was kind of surprised. It was one of the things I kind of thought about. And again, I want to make it very clear. Anytime I come up with something like this, this isn't me saying this is what it should. How do I put this? I'm not putting that out there and going, we need to solidify this. We need to make it, you know, the official rules of tarantula keeping, whatever it may be, the code of conduct. It's just me kind of getting people thinking. That's the whole point of these. I'm not trying to lead any charge here. This would never, I had somebody come in and basically one of the emails was, you know, and I thought I had covered this a couple times during the actual podcast. Their comment was something along the lines of, yeah, this is a really cool idea, but you'd never get everyone to do it. I know that. I'm fully aware of that. And I thought I had mentioned it several times. I am above all a realist. And I thought I had mentioned that this is nothing that we could ever, there's no governing body. I, as we say, we, we talk about the hobby right now. I'm doing air quotes, but it was just an idea of how nice it would be if there was something, if we were able to pull it together, some rules we could all agree on. So again, I want to make that point very clear because I think some folks thought I was like trying to say, all right, here it is. This is it. Now everybody let's vote on this and put it into law or effect. No, it wasn't that at all. Anytime I do a podcast about anything, it's to get people thinking. And a lot of times I hit it from different angles. Sometimes we, you know, I've had folks say, oh yeah, I like how you covered that topic differently than you did the last time. Sometimes we cover some more popular topics more than once because you try to hit from a different angle to get more people to maybe have that aha moment where they go, oh, you know what? I didn't get last time, but now he's got a good point. I get it. And that's kind of the hopes that people will run with that kind of stuff. So wasn't first and foremost, that wasn't meant to be, all right, guys, everybody needs to follow this. It was just kind of daydreaming about what were some things that we would, you know, consider if we were going to make this list. Now, I did have somebody chime in on Facebook about some additions to this list that I want to cover. Well, one addition, one mistake that I made on a very unfortunate point in the podcast. So the first one is from Curtis Moo Marlou. I believe that's how you pronounce your last name, Curtis. If not, I apologize. Curtis chimes in. You mentioned to let you know if you missed something. I think we missed what to do in the event of a mistake, such as accidentally squishing a spider or accidentally taking a bite from a spider. We need to have a plan for dealing with the worst mistakes in our hobby's code of conduct. People will make mistakes. I think safety is a huge factor when working with any venomous animal. The risk of an allergic reaction to venom, or in the case of snakes, anti-venom is a real concern to have. Tools should always be used when working with venomous animals. I think it's obvious that keepers should never beat themselves up over a mistake. I've made so many mistakes in my 16 years as a keeper. However, the manner and context in which we talk about these mistakes, if we choose to, is important. I had an acquaintance recently post a photo of a P. Cambridge bite on their public Facebook page. I don't think it is an appropriate form of publishing a bite report. There are many relevant channels you can go through, including Facebook groups, that will put bite information in front of the people who have sought out that information and who will not use that information negatively against the hobby. A post on your timeline is not one of those relevant channels. So a lot to digest here. This is awesome. And, and I'm glad when I, a lot of times I make these lists and I, when I put the, the question or I put it out onto Facebook, one of the reasons I use Facebook as, and because if anybody knows me, I'm not on Facebook at all. Like I'm not a fan of it. Billy will be on it like when we're going to bed and stuff. And every once in a while I'll see a message pop up and I will click on it thinking it's a text message and it's a Facebook message and I'll answer it. But I'm not a big fan of Facebook, but I do put these up there because it gives people a chance to comment back. And I am working. I've had several people contact me saying, my gosh, I wish there was a place you could comment on these podcasts. I do have a site that I've had for months now that I haven't finished working on. It's a place that will allow you to thumbs up, thumbs down, leave comments, get a dialogue going, and hopefully I'll be able to launch that very soon. Worst case scenario, we're talking this summer when I have some more time on my hands because there's a couple more things I got to do to tweak it, but we will have that. So 
with this comment, I, I have to say there are some some good ideas here. And I think a code of conduct, as far as where to share your stuff, I, I think it's more overreaching than that. I think it's like know your audience. And I, I think where we're going with this is I believe you're exactly correct. When folks do something like this or do something, have a mistake or they get bit by a spider and they post it on general media, general social media and not in the correct context and groups, that does bring negative attention to the hobby. That's, look it, they are nasty, they are defensive, they are scary, and it can bring negative attention in forms of legislation where if somebody's going to start campaigning against us keeping spiders, they pull something up like that, now they have supposed proof that they are nasty uh, creatures, they're to be feared. I agree, there should be, I mean, I think this would come under, and I, I'm not sure how I would put it, it, it goes beyond just uh, talking about accidents or bite reports, it's proper or responsible social media use, I think, with when it entails the animals, I think that's what would probably put this under, and I think that's where you're going with this, where instead of going out and putting it on your regular Facebook page to your, you know, 2,000 family and friends who really don't care about your spider hobby, which is just going to get a negative reaction, being able to use social media with your spiders correctly. I always think, and maybe we could put it something along these lines, when posting pictures and videos and and any type of information about our spiders on social media, that we do so in a responsible and positive way. I think that's how I would frame that one. Hopefully that's along the same lines of what you're saying, because I agree 100%. I think that almost falls in line with the, you know, the YouTubers that go out there and do terrible things just to get YouTube views. I think a lot of us who don't have YouTube pages, well, not me, obviously, or don't have YouTube channels or podcasts or huge Instagram pages or whatever it may be, those of us who just use our regular social media like a, a, a regular human being would, I don't know how to put that, I'm a regular human being, I, you know what I'm trying to say. Those of us who aren't trying to become personalities, that are just posting stuff on our personal pages, really do have a responsibility to the hobby to ensure that we're not putting stuff out there that can be used against us. And again, I don't think it's a matter of hiding anything because I, I can see how people would hear this and go, oh, so you're saying we should hide the fact that they can bite. No, 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 no. I'm saying there needs to be context. And in this instance right here, I don't know the video of the Cambridge Eye bite. I know there was one out there that was making the rounds and going rather viral where I think it came out and bit the guy right on the finger. And a couple people showed it to me. I'm like, for crying out loud, what is wrong with people? And it looked like it was a very, it was a very avoidable bite. Maybe that's the one you're talking about. Maybe it's not. I don't know, but that's one that immediately came to mind. Yeah, that stuff went around, and I even had a buddy of mine at work that was on Instagram. It got passed around on Instagram, and was like, "Yeah, did you see this one? What's going on here? Is that a bad bite?" Like, and I had to sit down and explain to him, like, "Listen, that shouldn't even come into play. You got to be careful." So, yes, I 100% agree that. Anybody that's in the hobby keeping these animals has a responsibility to themselves, to the animals, and to the, once again, air quote, hobby to make sure that we are posting stuff that portrays them in the correct light. I won't even say a good light, the correct light. Because when you put stuff out to the general masses that reinforces some of those myths and some of those fears that we have about them, it just, it's a detriment to our hobby. We should be trying to convince people everything I do with my, with my Instagram page, it's funny because I have a buddy of mine who lives in the UK. He and his wife, he's a writer, a fantastic writer. And he and his wife, back when we were doing publishing, actually came and stayed with us. It was kind of cool because Billy and I never have any types of, <laughs> we don't get a lot of company. And we had folks coming from the UK and we had a black, awesome people. Anyway, I digress. 
He and I are friends. He posts a lot of garden pics. They're absolutely stunningly beautiful on Instagram. So I kind of, we keep in touch with each other through that now. And I post the spider pics and he came on one day and he's like, nope. And we kind of went back and forth and he talked about how the fact he goes, you know what? I, they scare me, but I have to say that what you're posting up, some of the pictures of them are absolutely stunning. I didn't realize they come in, you know, so many colors and stuff. That's what we should be trying to do with our social media. So yes, we should not be posting things out of context in the wrong groups and the wrong forums. We should be keeping that stuff in the hobby, so to speak, so that we can learn from it. I love, one of my big things with bite reports, honestly, is the fact that how many of them, if you read the description of what happened, were completely preventable. When I was freaking out, when I was getting into old worlds, I poured through every bite report I could find, and I can't tell you how many of them involved somebody trying to pose a spider, had the spider out of its den, or I was trying to get pictures of my OBT, and I had it out on the floor, stuff like that. Usually, they're avoidable. I would say 99% of the time they're avoidable. I would say if you're super careful, they should be completely avoidable. And then as far as mistakes, yes, I do think safety is obviously a huge factor. I do think we should be able to share our mistakes with other people to get feedback on. My big thing with mistakes is sometimes to not be judgmental. Sometimes there are mistakes where it's like, all right, everybody's done that. And there's sometimes there are people need to hear that, you know what, you are going to, I make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. I've definitely made mistakes before. Oh gosh, yes. But for the type of mistakes, like squishing a spider, not watering correct, keeping the you know moisture level up, whatever. Some of those I think would fall under the fact of just being kind to each other in, in public and in social media. I think the fact that, you know, a lot of times when people share their mistakes, it's easy for us to judge. Oh, I slipped. I dropped a piece of cork bark. I squished my spider. Everybody out there, somebody's going to come and tell me I'm wrong, but everybody out there has had one of those jump scare moments where the spider jumps out, startles them. They lose track of a water dish or a piece of cork bark, and it falls in a way that could harm the spider. I It shouldn't, when you get better at your rehousings, you should prepare more for it, but it takes us some time to get there, and I think it's important to recognize that things like that happen. So my big, I, for the as far as the mistakes portion of it, I think that kind of falls under the heading of just being kind to each other. Again, sharing it in those public groups so people can learn from it and those tarantula forums or Facebook groups or Reddit groups or whatever, so that you're in there with a group of people that understand it. I mean, in terms of squishing a spider or something like that, you post that on just your regular Facebook page or regular Instagram account or some account that's not devoted to spiders, and you're going to get a lot of people that go, good, I squish all the spiders I see too. That's the only thing I see coming out of that. So overall, not even overall, great points, Chris. I agree. There should be something in there as far as how we portray ourselves in the media, not just, you know, how we interact with our each other in these groups that are devoted to tarantulas, but how we portray ourselves in the media is incredibly important and should absolutely be a point on this list. Now, on to the mistake that I made. Uh, again, I always try to call myself out when I screw up, and this time I did one at a rather inopportune moment. Obviously, one of the things I was talking about in that list of a code of conduct for the hobby was people staying up to date with the changes in the taxonomy and with the name changes. It was, when I came up with this one, I was more thinking, and I don't know if I articulated this. Obviously, I didn't, if this is the response, I, one of the responses I got. But my thought was, it was more with people that are, how do we put it? willfully ignorant as far as the changes. The ones that hear there's a change and they don't, they can't argue Anything other than, I don't feel like changing the name. This is the name I call by. I don't want to change it. Or, yeah, I know they changed it, but that's just some guy that doesn't know what he's talking about, trying to make a name for himself. I'm not going to change it. I'm talking the ones that refuse to change the names. However, while I was explaining this, I brought up the H. Chalency, 
which is going to be the subject of this email because I didn't say that in the podcast. This one's from Stephen Davies. I hope all is well. I listened to your new podcast that came out for 24-22, and while I agree with the bulk of it, I just felt the need to address something. One of the points you drive home is the need to use the most updated names for tarantulas, which I do agree with. Now, I'm gonna I'm not going to get into this whole middle paragraph here, but he brings up some awesome points about what's going on now with Pseudoclamorous and Amazonius revision, and there's basically some discussion uh, over whether or not we should get the label makers out yet because this isn't done, and there are are instances in the hobby where something gets changed and those in the know will tell you hold on a second this isn't going to this isn't going to stand this isn't going to hold so he brought up the fact that if people were to change it now it could lead to hybridization awesome points basically uh, actually, I will read this. This is tricky in particular with the recent Pseudoclamorous Amazonius revision where Pseudoclamorous gigas was synonymized, synonymized, I have a hard time with that word, with Tapatacinius plumipes. And what we called Sumoclamorous gigas was described as a new species called Amazonius germani. Germani? Germani. We'll go with Germani. Somebody's going to butcher, tell me I butchered Latin here and I apologize. Despite Pseudoclamorous gigas being the type species for the genus. The new revision also makes Tapanicanius violaceus no longer valid as synonymized Tapanicanius violaceus was with the Tapanicanius plumipes, although they are clearly different species. Further revision is necessary to clear this up, but relabeling everything in this case could cause hybrids to occur. So awesome, valid, not arguing with a single point. I'm not arguing, I'm honestly not going to argue with anything that's said in this one, but excellent points is in a counter argument to jumping on too quickly with some of these revisions. I think he brings up a very good point there that the ones that come out, and I think this falls in line with trying to stay, and it can be difficult, trying to stay on top of these situations. If you go on arachnoboards, great place to go and keep track of these, because not only will you hear about these revisions, this is where people will often chime in about maybe dissenting a opinions on them. Maybe some of them saying, yeah, that's not what I heard. Or some folks are in the know going, yep, I've heard they're still working on that. Hold your horses. Don't relabel them yet or relabel them as this. That's part of, and we're on the same page here of keeping informed about these name changes, recognizing where some of the ones coming out may not stick and that we may not want to jump to rushing for those label makers next. Uh, yeah. Now for the next part of it. However, my main point for reaching out is because you use Homeoma chilensis as the example. As somebody else called it, youthless species red. I think highly of you and your impact on the hobby, so I hope this doesn't sound rude. In February 2022, Homeoma chilensis was renamed as Homeoma chilensi. The paper is available for free on the World Spider Catalog. For 10 weeks, this update and information has been widely available. If you look on Wikipedia, posts on arachnoboards, etc., it's all there. Homeoma chilensi. So when I'm listening to the podcast and I hear you urging the importance of trying to keep up to date with the information in the species you keep, as well as the importance of using the most recent taxonomy, you were still using an outdated binomial. I couldn't help but feel a little frustrated. I agree with your sentiment, but it felt relevant enough for me to reach out about this. I hope you have a great week and would love to hear back from you. And I did email back and talk about an inopportune moment to slip. I, and I'm going to call myself on that. I did. I went back. As soon as I received this email, I'm like, oh my God, because I actually wrote notes for this to remind myself that it's Chalensi. I'm very well aware, and I did respond that I'm very well aware of the chains. I purposely wrote down Chalensi on my notes so I would remember. This falls in line with, if anybody's listened to me for years, the NNC, Neohalothelia NC, for example, or NSI, when I first bought mine. They were H NC, and I slip sometimes. I've I can't tell you how many times I've had to correct myself in the podcast. Go wait a minute. Or for example, Bumba 
Kabokla is now Bumba Harita. I just was talking about Bumba Kabokla the other day and had to correct myself. So I think it's one of those things, old habits die hard. When you have a species that you've been calling a certain name for a, a long time, you tend to slip up and call it the old name. That was what happened there with me. I was familiar with it. I get, and, and again, it was the worst spot for that slip up to happen because here I am telling people keep up with it and I'm using the outdated binomial for it. So yep, agree completely. That was terribly timed. Uh, my only, again, my, my only comment back, or I don't want to say retort because it's not retort, just to explain myself, is the fact that that was just me speaking the old name out of habit. I know the name. I, I'm talking for this, for that particular part of my code of conduct. It was about people being like yourself, aware of these new names. I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's other of us out there that have done the same thing. We slip up, you have it in your head. It takes a while for these to switch over. I mean, I could name probably, oh God, maybe two or three dozen species that I keep that have had name changes over the years and it sometimes takes me a while. So the problem with it is when you're trying to make a point about how important it is to keep up with this stuff and then you slip up and use the old name, you look like a doofus. So thank you so much, Stephen, for catching that and calling it out. I'm actually... It, it was funny because it was with one part dread and one part, oh, thank gosh that I received this email because the first point, my first reaction was son of a gun. I purposely wrote that down, but I went off script. And I didn't look at my notes when I just started rattling off and it just, the old name came out. But then the other part was, thank gosh, somebody caught it so I could basically talk about it and remind people that there's a sterling example of being caught up with the name. So Stephen, thank you so much for reaching out. And anybody, please don't ever hesitate. If I misspeak or screw up in something, let me know. The thing is, I've, this is my fifth season of this. I'm talking about tarantulas for, you know, 45, 50 minutes a week. There's going to be slip-ups. And my big thing is I don't want anything. If I slip up, I need to know so I can correct it the next episode so people realize that, A, I'm cognizant of it. And B, if it's, you know, there's been slip-ups that really could screw people up. I need to know about that so I can comment on it. So when people listen to that next podcast, at least they can go, oh, I either, oh, I didn't even catch that. Oh, thank gosh he, he corrected himself or explained himself. Or in situations where they go back and, and I say something like this or mispronounce something, they can go, all right, I'm glad he corrected that. There was one where I got interviewed, or I did an interview for a podcast, was it Animals at Home? I think it was. And I made up my own species of spider. I'm rolling. I'm thinking this is going really great. And I'm not going to lie. I was nervous. It was the first time getting interviewed on something and trying to come across not like a total doofus. And I think, what was it? A fauna pelma. I think I made up the species of Fauna Pelma Alba Pelosum or something. Freaking to date, that's one I really want back because there was no way for me to correct it on the actual main site. Like the guy, it was on somebody else's podcast. So that one still haunts me and I want that one back. So great point, Stephen. I truly appreciate it. Thanks so much. Now we're going to hop into what our main topic is going to be for today. And I actually, it's funny because I planned for this to be about a 30 minute podcast because I, again, I wasn't feeling it first, but we're already at the 22 minute mark. So this is going to be one of those ones people get really upset with me for because the topic of this will be the persistent myths in the tarantula hobby or hobby myths. And this means not just trits, uh, myths about tarantulas that the lay people out there seem to think. We're talking about myths in the actual hobby that all hobbyists need to be aware of and know about. I have covered tarantula myths before on the website, and some of these have received their own podcast topics, but I don't believe I've ever brought them all together. I also did the tarantula non-myths one, which was things that we think are myths in the hobby that people go, oh, that's just a myth, but they're actually true. And the thing is, I do need to explain before we hop into this one that usually when you have a myth, it came from some Somewhere. So 
all of these have some type of like kernel of truth or something that somebody has observed or seen or experienced that has created these myths for the most part. I'm looking at my list now and I'm like, yeah, I think most of them have this. So we will try to break down and because what happens is when you do myth, when you call something a myth, you're saying usually that it's completely untrue. And that's not how we're going to approach this. We're going to approach it and say, it's pretty much untrue. However, here are some things you may need to know about. And that way, there's a little more learning to be had because it's not just this doesn't happen. It's all right. What happens when and you'll see when we get into it in this situation? Well, then maybe in that case, it's true. That's what we're gonna, how we're going to try to approach this. So tarantula myths in the hobby. There are a lot of them. Again, I'm trying to focus this one on more of the ones that keepers need to be aware of. So we left out, if anybody saw my article I did years ago, which was actually a lot of fun to do, and I'd love to revisit it, but it was more just general myths that people think, like the fact they can jump five feet up in the air, the fact that they have to be defanged, things of that nature. We're not covering those. They're fun ones, but I don't hear those much that often anymore. The ones that I'm going to go over today are ones that I'm still encountering after a decade of doing this type of stuff. The, the ones I still get people say, oh no, but I heard this. Or yeah, but I heard this was how it works. These are ones that are still in the hobby. They're persistent. It doesn't matter how many of us get out there and try to explain people that this situation can't happen or it isn't true or at least you're misunderstanding the risk or whatever it may be. This These myths are still around. And in many cases, these myths can be a detriment to the hobby or a detriment to the hobbyist, meaning they think they're keeping their tarantula safe and they may actually be putting their tarantula more at risk for other more dangerous situations by pretending like these are real and adhering to them. So to kick this one off... I was just on answering some YouTube comments and somebody responded to one of my, I posted one of my podcasts up there and we were talking about the myth of tarantula bites are like bee stings. I have explained before that this myth I'm pretty sure was, well, I'm not pretty sure, I'm pretty positive, was based on only the new world species of tarantulas. It's one that's been around since I can remember. I remember getting my first, when I got my first back in the 90s, that was one of the things I was telling Billy. I'm like, yeah, apparently their bites are no worse than bee stings. And again, this one's misleading on two fronts. Number one, let's go to the fact that there are obviously old world tarantulas out there that that bite is going to be a heck of a lot worse than a bee sting or a wasp sting. And that's something that gets left out sometime we were just Billy and I were just watching something oh gosh I wish I could remember what it was and somebody was talking about tarantulas and they were actually giving some good points and then they went and a little known fact tarantula bites are no worse than an average bee sting and I was like okay that's with some species but not even all new world species because supposedly the Salmapia species have a particularly nasty bite. They're argued that their venom is more akin to an old world bite that's a little nastier. So that's something to keep in mind. And the fact that we have all these old world tarantulas that can have rather nasty bites that in worst, you know, best case scenario, you're in excruciating pain for a day or so or a couple hours. Worst case scenario, we're talking about some that have lingering effects that can last months after the initial bite. So obviously not true in that respect, but I'm going to take this a step further. And I've mentioned this before. We forget about a little thing called mechanical damage. I don't know if you've seen a bee stinger. It's not particularly impressive. It's a small little device meant to deliver that little sting. A wasp stinger, yeah, sure, some of them can have a little bit bigger stingers, but they're not all that big. Now take a look at your average five to six inch tarantula's fangs. A, first thing to consider, there are two. So even if one was like a bee sting, that's two bee stings for the price of one on probably your digit, the top of your finger, the back of your, they usually get people around the hand area. And 
B, they are a heck of a lot bigger than a stinger. They are, tarantula fangs are impressive. Even some of the smaller uh, species, they can really get in there. So we kind of forget about the fact that, yeah, most bites probably from a New World species aren't going to be all that bad. But let's not pretend like having a six-inch creature latch onto your finger and drive two fangs into it it couldn't be a bit traumatizing and I've spoken to people before they're like yeah the bite itself was kind of painful but it was more just the way it bit in and, and it freaked me out so let's not downplay completely I know again I believe this one it's kind of one of those good myths because we kind of created it to let people know, hey, they're really not that dangerous. And that's important to know. But I also think sometimes we downplay the bites to a point where people sometimes forget the fact that even a bite from a New World species could be a traumatic event. And if you think about some of the other New World species, like, I don't know, we'll go Theraphosis species, a 10-inch Theraphosis sturmy could have up to three-quarter inch fangs, huge fangs. And I have spoken to people that have been bit by sturmies or blondies, and one of the things they've received is bad mechanical damage, meaning the actual tearing of the skin. One individual, it nicked a tendon and ended up having to have surgery on the tendon. That's something to keep in mind. So let's stop pretending like the, the bites are all like bee stings. That's not true for any of the species. I would rather get stung by a bee than probably bit by any of the tarantulas in my collection. So let's put that myth out of the way. Uh, the other one that I'm going to kind of segue right into, tarantula bites can kill. I think that's the opposite of this one. I've had many people go, aren't you afraid your tarantulas are going to bite you and kill you? There have been no recorded deaths from tarantula. Well, okay, let's put it this way. There's been, I believe, one recorded, uh, the S. calciatum. I believe there was one incidence where they bit, I want to say, a younger child in the back of the neck in the back of the neck area and the child ended up unfortunately uh, tragically passing away but there was thought about the fact that it wasn't just the venom of the bite it was the position of the bite and perhaps there could have been infection in gangrene there was also I believe a situation where somebody in the U.S. Uh, I want to say over a century ago was bitten by an afonopelma species developed gangrene and ended up dying so as far as the venom killing you no you have uh, more of a likely shot of being struck by lightning and killed I believe we went through the, the bites when we went through the podcast about how dangerous are tarantulas and spiders really, and we broke down those numbers, and they're very minuscule, even with all these people keeping them. So tarantula bites, we can just knock this one isn't even going to, I'm not even entertaining this one, I'm not even going to say there's two sides of it. They are not deadly 99.9999999% of the time. You can take, again, I've looked, and over the years, every time I go to do one of these, I look for more evidence that somebody died from it, you're not going to die from it. Is it unpleasant to be bitten by one? Absolutely, but people need to realize they are not animals that are going to get out of your house. You know, that's a big fear. What if they escape and they bite you while you're sleeping? It's not going to happen. Even if they do escape, even if they end up in your pillows and you end up rolling over one and it bites you, you're not going to die. Now, another big one that comes out, and I just received this one again because I was telling somebody to put a water dish in there, and they're like, but my spider's going to drown. Tarantulas cannot, okay, we're going to add a caveat to this. Healthy tarantulas will not drown in their water dishes. They are able to repel water. They're able to float on water. I've shared before, there was a YouTube video out there where somebody dumped one out and it was in their toilet or something. It was some weird, it was a horrible experiment, but somebody was showing how long the spider could sit there floating on the top of the water with no issues whatsoever. As long as they keep their book lungs out of the water, they are fine. Most of them will scramble. It's not like, if you ever watch like a cricket, when crickets get in water dishes, they paddle around, they end up drowning, they can't get over the edge. If you watch a spider, they'll float right onto the edge, they'll latch onto the edge of the water dish because they do have those little toe claws and they'll climb right out. There's no problem whatsoever. So they will not drown in water dishes. I've seen little teeny slings jump into their water dishes, pop right out they're fine 
The issue is, and this is where we get, and we said we're going to break down both sides. It's where this comes from, is a healthy tarantula will not drown the water dish. A sick tarantula will often come out of its burrow or linger around the water dish. So I've had tarantulas before that are fossorial species. They're older. They come out, and even if the, the substrate is moist, they end up around their water dishes. I've seen people that have kept their tarantulas too dry. They come up around water dishes. But if a tarantula is sick, we have spoken in the past about the fact I do believe that they can get some types of bacterial infections. They seem to come out and they congregate around the water dish. So what you have now is a tarantula that's dying, that's ready to pass away. It's hanging around the water dish. And what ends up happening, it dies because the last days of its life, it's hovering around the water dish. It dies. It falls in the water dish. The keeper comes home, sees the tarantula in the water dish, goes, oh my God, it drowned. It didn't drown. Or maybe it did, but it was because it was already sick and could not hold itself up. It was lingering around the water dish. Healthy tarantula is not going to fall in the water dish and drown. An unhealthy one that's on its last legs, eventually it's going to die. It's going to settle down into wherever it was, which would be on the water dish, even if it's not completely dead already, but it's so weak that it can't hold itself up. Those book lungs go into the water and then you have a dead spider. So we need to make that very clear because there's still some folks that freak out. This seems to happen. I've noticed this a lot, uh, quite a bit over the years, a lot with avicularia species. People will find their avicularias upside down in the water dishes. I really wonder if that's a situation where it is too dry for them or, you know, again, you have a sick spider that ends up hovering over the water dish trying to get some more extra moisture on those book lungs and then it passes away. But a, a healthy spider is not going to drown in the water dish. I uh, Just the last time I covered this topic, I, I mentioned it in something about water dishes, probably one of my water dish tirades. And somebody came on and they're like, oh, but I found this one and it was in the water dish. I'm pretty sure it drowned. And then we went through and found out the spider had been sick for a while. So please keep that in mind when you're setting them up. Water dishes, I'm obviously a huge proponent of water dishes. They are a great thing. And we need to finally wrap our heads around the fact that we are not endangering our tarantulas when we give them water dishes. In fact, this is one of those ones I was talking about. If you adhere to this myth, if you believe it, if you don't give them water dishes, then you're actually creating more, in my opinion, I'll put that in there, you're possibly creating more of a risk for your spider by not giving them that alternative to be able to go get a drink when they need to, or it's a place to be able to hover around if it's too dry in there. So, Tarantulas cannot drown in water dishes. We're going to piggyback on this one because I received a sponge pick. I haven't received one of these in a long time, but I had an individual that was apparently keeping spiders for quite some time, and he showed me a picture of his setup, and there was a sponge in the water dish. And I'm like, you need to take that out of there, and they can't drown. He's like, no, but they need it so they can get the water out of it because they use their fangs to suck the water out of it. A, they don't need sponges. Get the sponge. There's no, uh, somebody argued this point with me recently. It was one of the ones I'm like, we're just going to stop because I'm not going to get into this discussion. They do not need water dishes. All they do, if you put a sponge in there, sure. Can they drink? Can they lower themselves in the same way they will in the wild? Use their mouth parts to, to suck the water? Absolutely. But the sponge is just going to be a, become a Petri dish for bacteria. There's no need for it. The, the bottom line, you don't need it at all. There's absolutely no purpose for it. They can drink directly from the water dish. They can filter the water the same way. They're getting fresh water. It's better. And we need to keep in mind that their fangs are not straws. I get this one quite a bit. The fangs are used to puncture and deliver the venom. They are not used as straws. They do not suck them out. Like, you know, back in the day, we'd have vampires. Some of the vampire cartoons, the vampires bite you and they use their little fangs as straws. That's not how they work. So let's get the sponges out of there. Let's remember the fangs are used to defend themselves, are used to capture prey, to envenomate prey. They are not used as drinking straws. The next one up I get quite a bit. It's usually from folks that are just getting into the hobby. And it, again, it's one of the ones that there are two sides to this. It's not a cut and dry one. But the myth that tarantula breeding is a lucrative business. 
let's break this one down just a little bit. We're not going to spend a huge amount of time on it, but I think that people need to be aware of a couple things with this. Number one, can it be a lucrative business? Yes, there are some people out there that are making a lot of money selling tarantulas. There are also people out there that have spent years building up their businesses that know how to effectively run the business, that know how to find people that breed so they can get uh, slings wholesale. The majority of breeders or sellers out there that are selling tarantulas have import licenses, which is a huge investment. They get import in, which again requires huge investments. This isn't, I think a lot of folks out there, they go, here's what happens. They go on, they start buying tarantulas. And their first thing is, wow, these things are expensive. A GBB, $65 for a sling. A T uh, apophysis, 75 bucks. I could just get some of these and breed them. So all of a sudden they immediately transition from, I'm in this new hobby that's really cool because these animals are fascinating. I love learning about them. I love keeping them too. I'm in this hobby, which is really cool. However, now I'm going to make a bunch of money off of it. And unfortunately, I think it ruins the hobby for many people. I can't tell you how many folks will introduce themselves to me, ask a question, and then tell me they are putting together breeding pairs for breeding projects. And then when we get down to it, they've been in the hobby for a handful of months. And that's not to say that people shouldn't breed. I I think breeding is a huge part of the hobby. It's a huge, anybody that's bred tarantulas before produced their own slings. It's, it's an amazing feeling, an amazing achievement. It's also a heck of a lot of work. And unless you have a play, unless you're ready to sell these guys wholesale, it's a lot of work to keep them as you grow them up. And there's not a lot of financial return because people, when they buy tarantulas, because the shipping is so expensive, they want to go to a place where they can buy a bunch and offset the cost of shipping. When you try to sell them by yourself, you're not going to be getting those deals, those shipping deals from FedEx that the bigger dealers can get. So it's going to cost you sometimes 90 to 100 bucks if you're shipping across country you know, overnight to get your spider from point A to point B. So a person can go buy two GBB slings for you for, say you sell them for $50 each, hundred bucks, and then they might pay hundred dollars shipping where they could go to one of the bigger dealers and pick those up a bunch of other ones and only pay $50 shipping. So it can be very, very difficult in that type of scenario to find enough. If you figure the, you know, tarantulas, a lot of these tarantulas, minimum hundred slings, some of them hundreds of slings. Are you going to be able to sell all those slings or are you going to be stuck taking care of them for a while? And then I think what happens is a lot of people go, they go to sell them wholesale and they go, well, I see these GBBs selling online, green bottle blues, uh, C, kind of pubis, and sorry. Always, that's one of the few that I actually slip into using the common name for quite a bit. But also I figure people listening to this probably don't know the scientific names. So there's my excuse. But anyway, people see these things selling for 65 bucks each. And I don't know why I picked the species because this is one of the more difficult ones to breed, but they see them and they go, wait a minute, I could easily produce those and I could sell them for 50 bucks each and make a killing. That's great, except you're not going to be able to find that many people buying for that price. So then what ends up happening is you go, well, I'm going to wholesale them. And the wholesaler says, yeah, no problem. That's great. I'll take the whole sack. I'll give you, and I don't know what the going price is for this. So please forgive me, people that buy them wholesales or wholesale or whatever. They go, I will give you $15 each for them, or I'll give you $20 each for them. And they go, wait a minute, you're going to sell them for 65, but I'm going to sell them to your 15. No way. And I've spoken to people before. They've been very frustrated because they produced a sack. They thought they were going to get near that, that price for it, but then they go to wholesale them and realize they're only going to get a fraction of that. The hobby is difficult to get started in. Enjoy the hobby. You can always, there's always time to breed later on. And there's good ways to make money or to at least in the very least, to support your own spending, your own hobby through breeding. A lot of folks who do the breeding stuff realistically and right 
will breed. They'll get a sack. They'll contact the dealer. They'll set up a wholesale opportunity where they'll sell the whole sack to them. They get a nice chunk of change out of that. Or someone will do it. I've done it for store credit many, many times. Like, hey, I don't want any money for this. You take these slings so I don't get stuck taking care of them. And I hate to put it that way, but it's a lot of work and not something when you already have a huge collection, you want to have a lot of, you know, hundreds of other babies to take care of. But you take these and and I'll get a couple things that I'm like too cheap to splurge on. It can work out great. So definitely with the breeding is an excellent way to support your hobby, to get more captive bred slings into the hobby. I don't want this to sound like I'm telling people not to breed. Not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about the folks that immediately decide, the heck with that. I'm going to breed. I'm going to get my own store going. They go out, start buying all the females they can get. They're grabbing males from people, even though they've never paired anything before in their life. And then before you know it, they're selling their collections off because it didn't pan out. They've got a bunch of spiders. It's not working out for them. And they not only are not selling and not becoming a dealer, but they are no longer in the tarantula hobby. And it's kind of sad because I think for some people, it kind of ruins things. But I also think some people are looking for ways, you know, you're out there, you're looking for ways to make some extra money and they do see what goes on in the hobby. They do see how much money these things can make and they think I'm going to get in on that. So not to detour people. Obviously, we want folks to... We want new dealers to pop up. We want new alternatives to where we can buy our spiders. It'd be great if we had even more. We have a lot of good ones in the United States. We're very fortunate in that respect. But hey, yeah, we could take more. But first things first. Get into the breeding. Have have a successful pairing. Sell the, the slings wholesale. Get an idea of how the thing works. And then as you get down the line, get more established. If you want to start putting together breeding pairs, you know, maybe looking out to how to import or find somebody that can sell you stuff wholesale because you're never going to be able to, I shouldn't say never, I'm sure somebody will do it, but it's very difficult, especially in the United States, to have enough different species bred and producing sacks at the same time to solely support a business on your own personal breeding. It generally doesn't work that way. All the dealers are buying slings from other people. They're buying wholesale. They're importing. They're getting from other people that import. And that's how we keep the hobby going over here. So just have a better understanding of how it works before you jump in and immediately think, I'm going to be the next big tarantula dealer. Now, the next one up just popped up the other day again. I, I get these a lot. The old power feeding and tarantulas. There's a myth out there that, and this I believe came from the snake hobby, where you can basically heat up a, a snake, you can feed it, and basically overfeed it. Some would say to the point where it grows more rapidly, so you can get a breeding pair more quickly. You saw a lot of this back in the heyday. Well, they're still super expensive. I'm actually shocked that ball pythons, the morphs, are still very, very pricey. And back in the day, what would happen is somebody would grab this new morph, morph of ball python to get a male and a female, and the trick was to get these things up to breeding age as fast as our breeding size as fast as possible so that they could hopefully get eggs and babies from them so they could sell them and recoup their losses from spending probably 12 grand on this pair of snakes. So it's, I think a lot of people come to the hobby from the snake hobby, come to the tarantula hobby from the snake hobby, and they think the same thing works. So I have many people that will come to me and say, hey, Tom, I've got some spiders. I, I'm, I'm going to do power feeding because I want to make sure I have an adult within a year or so. And we need to understand, I've done a whole thing on power feeding. I have a whole article on my website. And again, I hate being one of these people that just pimps out their own stuff. But it's worth a look, taking a look at if you are one that's thinking about, quote unquote, power feeding. I don't believe it's really a thing in the tarantula hobby. I honestly don't think you can power feed. Can you jack up temperatures and get higher growth rates? Yep, I absolutely agree that in some instances, and I look at the LP as a spider, that if you keep it at room temperature, the majority of people that I talk to that keep it more on the room temperature side, like you know the high 60s, low 70s year round, have slower growth than the folks I talk to that have higher temperatures. They're from warmer areas where it gets a little warmer in the house. They tend to have faster growth. So yes, 
if you basically up the heat, you're going to usually experience faster growth with your tarantulas. And in many respects, if we look at where they come from, this isn't an abnormal thing we're doing. This is in the wild, you'll have a species that is probably exposed to temps in the 80s, sometimes 90s. So they're used to those warmer temperatures during some times of the year. So by jacking up the temperatures at home, we're not necessarily doing anything artificial. We're just giving them the normal heat they would have in their own environment. We've just found that they do very well at room temperature. They just grow a little more slowly. But the power feeding is kind of a misnomer because it's not just feeding them. You have to raise the temperature and feed them more. So to make it clear, if I'm keeping my spiders right now at 65, 70 degrees, and I'm feeding them every a, a big juicy cricket every single day, they don't have the heat to support that faster metabolism. So what you're going to get is a spider that's going to fill up. It's going to hit that threshold that tells its body, all right, we've had enough. It's time to go into pre-molt. And then you're probably going to experience a very long pre-molt period. This is where we get a lot of fasting from. This is where when we get folks from the new world, the quote-unquote beginner species, the brachypelma, phonopelma, uh, Gramostola species, they get them in, they're all excited to have their new pet, they feed them two or three times a week, and then the spider fattens up and doesn't eat again for several months, it doesn't molt again, even as a small sling. That's where we get that from oftentimes. So it's important to recognize that just feeding them a bunch of food isn't necessarily going to increase their growth rate, it isn't necessarily going to give you a larger spider faster. I often talk about Formictopus species, I get very good growth out of my Formictopus species, but I have found that when they fatten up, if you fatten them up quick with a bunch of big meals, they can basically go months without molting and without eating. So something to know. Now, if you want to up the temperatures a bit, will you get probably faster growth rate? You may get a little bit faster growth rate, but just giving them extra food or feeding them constantly. I had somebody the other day that said they were going to feed theirs every day, and I tried to inform them politely that with the species they were dealing with, they were likely to get a fat spider that would not molt for a while and drive them nuts because they'd be breaking out because their spider's not eating. In all honesty, I almost wish the term power feeding would go away in the hobby uh, because it's just... Like I said, it's a misnomer. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I have folks that will, the other thing is like try to get a definition of power feeding your spiders. I've had folks contact me and say, I'm feeding it twice a week. I'm power feeding it. Mm, no, uh, twice a week if it's a sling, and usually it's with slings. I A lot of us will feed slings more often because we're trying to get them out of that sling stage. And slings will grow a little more quickly than their adult counterparts. That needs to be mentioned as well. So you may get a sling that will eat really well for a month go into pre-molt for a few weeks and then molt again and then do the same thing again a couple months from that. I know my GBBs were like clockwork. It was like every two and a half months or so they were molting, which was great. So you can get some faster growth rate out of the slings, but that will slow down after they get, you know, some, some size on them. So power feeding thing, kind of, a, it's one of those not, doesn't really work the way people think it does. It's more about the temperatures. And then again, I don't encourage people to artificially heat their tarantulas if they've already got a good natural temperature in their home because that's just going to lead to more issues that's going to lead to the enclosures drying out more if you're using individual heat sources that's a big no-no in most cases unless you absolutely really need it because you're just setting up more of an opportunity for your spider to become desiccated or dried out from the heat source so let's get rid of power feeding or the the phrase power feeding or word power feeding is that one word i guess it'd be two words phrase we'll go with phrase power feeding in the hobby you can feed your tarantulas. We, we talk about a more, I sometimes say a more aggressive feeding schedule, which just means you're feeding them more than most people would. And I, I do use a more aggressive feeding schedule schedule with my smaller tarantulas. But as far as bigger ones go, once a week is perfectly fine. There's no need to overdo it. 
Next one, we're going to cover just because it pops up all the time. And I, I always like to bring it up only because I've heard people getting disappointed when they find out that this isn't necessarily the case. The idea of the giant 12-inch spiders. Uh, it comes up so much. I, I just had somebody else tell me they got a brand new LP, Lazy Dora Parahybana, the Salmon Bird Eater that a lot of folks are into. Awesome, awesome spiders. I have a big girl sitting over here that's pushing about nine inches or so. And they were telling me how they are so excited about the spider because they read that it gets to be 12 inches. So let's, and I've covered this, but this was actually one of the few myths. I plan on doing a series of tarantula myths videos on YouTube, and I never got around to doing a second one. But the first one I did is about the giants. Let's get out of the way that the uh, the chances of getting one of those, and I hate to say mythological, because this is going to be one of the ones where there are there spiders that reach 12 inches. Yes, there are. We have We have accounts of spiders reaching over 12 inches. I think the problem is, it's not very likely. It's not the norm. And I think a lot of folks read these articles about, it's funny, Billy and I were at a concert last night and there was a guy standing behind me talking about his uh, tarantulas. He had a, apparently a T-stermy and he goes, yeah, that thing's the size of a dinner plate. And it's like, can they reach the size of a dinner plate? Yes. Is it likely? Not always. So I always want to put that caveat. This is one of those myths, myths with an asterisk because yes, can tarantulas reach the mythical 12 inch mark? Yes. I believe a T blondie has reached a leg span. I, I, I think the T blondie one measured was 11, but I do know there was an apophysis. I want to say a male. I've mentioned this many times. Anybody has the information or link to this, please let me know. Cause I know somebody had one that supposedly was past the 12 inch mark. The molt was a 12 inch mark. So you're looking at possibly a 13-inch spider. Did not make Guinness records. It was not you know, officially measured, but a large spider. And then they often talk about the H maxima, the obviously the huntsman spider, the giant huntsman spider, that supposedly one of them got to be 12 inches in leg span. And most folks that know about the heteropoda maxima will say that's not the normal leg span from, yes, can, did one reach that mark? Yes. Is that normal? No. They said a lot of them will get around the eight, nine, maybe even 10 inch mark. That 12 inch, that foot mark is very, very, very rare. And the only reason I say this is because there are folks that get disappointed when they hear that their spider most likely won't reach that 12 inch mark. It's somebody that has had an LP now for 10 years and they said, you know, I'm kind of getting concerned now because it's about eight and a half inches now or nine inches. But I don't think it is it really going to hit that 12 inch mark. And I'm like, probably not. But who cares? A nine inch or a 10 inch spider is enormous. I have some bolts behind me. I have one of my T Blondie just molted again. And she's eight, eight. The molt was eight and three quarters inches, just hair over eight and three quarters inches. Close, we'll call it eight and three quarters, but closer to nine inches. So this is over a nine inch spider now. She's an impressive spider. She's a beautiful spider enormous, one of the biggest spiders I've ever seen. So let's just get it out of our heads that all of our spiders are going to hit that mythological 12-inch mark. And this is more of a fun one. This isn't really, this isn't really a hobby issue where you're going to hurt your spider. It's just, I think it's good that as hobbyists, we have realistic expectations when it comes to our tarantulas because believe it or not, I've had a lot of folks very disappointed when they find out that's not the norm. And I think I've had folks that almost seem like like I wouldn't have got this thing if I knew that it wasn't going to get that big. I would have got something else because I had one person go, like I tried to explain with the L pair high bandit. They get big. 10 inches, I definitely think is achievable. 9 inches is huge. 10 inches, definitely achievable. After 10 inches or so, the rare ones are going to get that super large. There are ones out there. Don't get me wrong. But the chances of getting one of those 12-inch ones 
are rare. And then be like, man, I wish I had just gotten the T Blondie now. So then I at least would have had a 12 inch one. And then I go, oh, oh, hold up. Um, not all of those get that big either. So I put this one in here more so folks will be realistic, but understand a 10 inch spider is huge. An 11 inch spider is freaking enormous. 12 inch spider, it's just gravy. It's even bigger. So please understand that when you get into the hobby. And then if anybody, I will throw this one out there. I do every single time I talk about the giant spiders. If anybody has pictures of a molt with the tape measure that they've gotten to that 12 inch mark, please share it. Because I know there are ones out there that can reach those marks, but I struggle to find any real evidence of them. I'm not discounting. I flat out believe it. I know it's true, but I need to see some evidence of it. So please feel free to contact me if you have that. This next one's a newer one, and I actually referenced this one a while back when we were talking about risk versus reward because I have had some many folks contact me kind of not upset with me, but really confused as to why I would ever use crickets to feed my spiders. Over the last couple of years, there's been this weird turn where folks have decided that crickets are the reason why a lot of people are getting mysterious deaths in their spiders, that crickets are carrying disease, bacteria, parasites, and that crickets are terrible for feeding tarantulas. And it's weird. And I, because I've used them now for like back in the day when I had, I got mine back in the nineties, I used mine for the queen all the way up through. Occasionally she got a thawed pinky mouse because I used to have snakes and I'd have one on hand, but it always made a mess. It was gross. But usually she would, I'd say 99% of the time I had her in the 25 years I had her, she had crickets. I've used crickets all the way through. I do have roach colonies. People are like, why don't you use roach colonies? I do have three different roach colonies. I use roaches. But the reason why I bring this one up is I have a lot of folks that will contact me and go, hey, Tom, I just got into the hobby and I have a few spiders, but I'm having a really difficult time because all I can find around here are crickets. And I'll kind of respond back like, oh, um, well, what's the problem with crickets? Oh, I've, I heard somewhere that crickets are terrible for your tarantulas. So I'm trying to find roaches. So I get a roach colony. And then you have these folks starting roach colonies that have like three tarantulas, which is kind of an overkill. Crickets have been are the most popular feeder insect in the world. And they've been used for many, many years with no issues. Could there be a situation where one could get a parasite? Is it possible? I'm sure it's probably possible. Is it probable? Heck no. I don't think it is at all. I really do think this comes from this one particular YouTuber that was having a bunch of deaths in their collection and they finally came forward and they went, I know what's killing them. It's the crickets. And I can't tell you. And I know this because a lot of people, I will go, Hey, where did you get that information from? And I'll get a link to, you know, a certain video or I'll, I'll get, they'll just tell me who it was. Here's the deal. We have to remember that individual is in another country where the crickets they could be getting. I don't know if they're using wild crickets. I don't know if they're using the same crickets we use over here. We have the banded crickets. We have the house crickets. I don't know what the situation is, but I'm assuming there could be more natural parasites over there. So if there were a case, if this person, and I don't know if they did, brought them to the vet or brought it to some type of researcher, they looked at the crickets, they went, hey man, your crickets have some type of bacteria, they have some type of parasite and that's what's killing your spiders off, then we have to look at where they are in terms of at least like in the United States. I don't think that's an issue. I don't think that happened. I think that the individual was getting more than more deaths than they thought was reasonable and was trying to kind of come up with a cause from it. I don't know exactly what was behind it. Maybe it was something legitimate where they figured out, but that's, and I think we've all gone through that. I, when I had my mysterious deaths back in the day that was due to the bad substrate, I did look at my feeders. I mean, I was looking at like, did I feed these guys roaches? Was this the same roaches from this? Like it, you start to freak out when you get a lot of deaths. So I understand that. But I think unfortunately what happened was somebody ran with one instance. And even if in that instance, it was the crickets, 
that doesn't apply to all the crickets all around the world and the United States and every other country. That means that somebody somewhere got a bad batch of crickets. Is it possible? Yes. Could you get, I mean, we were talking about parasites back in the day. People were like, why don't you use roaches? Roaches, they found, were carrying some of the parasites that we fear our tarantulas getting. Those were found in roaches in some situations. Now, can you keep roaches well and keep them cleanly? Absolutely. And a lot of us use feeder roaches, but to completely discount crickets as feeder insects is a little bizarre to me. Again, I am not, you know, I pride myself on keeping up to date with things. And, and if something came out that we found suddenly there are all these mysterious deaths and we could tra- trace them to crickets. Yes, obviously I would second guess using crickets for my spiders, but we don't have that. We've had many of us in the hobby have used crickets for a long, long time and continue to do so without issue. Now, as far as keep, keeping the crickets alive as well as, or as easily as we do the roaches, that's a totally different ball game. But as far as them being dangerous feeders, no, I'm not seeing it. And again, I will always keep my ears open. The last time this came up, the, an individual brought it up, we had a good conversation conversation back and forth about the crickets and he asked why I was doing that this is a whole risk versus reward thing and I tried to explain why I don't feel like the risk is very big but if something were to come out and I were to hear about believe me I would be all over that I would be the first one warning everybody be careful there is they found this in U.S. crickets or they found this in I believe you guys use them up in Canada as well and the UK get the locusts too which I'm still jealous about I love those locusts but anyway I would be the first person to go out there and say it but every time this rumor surfaces it's usually traded to one source and there's usually nobody can back up where they heard this from as far as like I'll go all right there's one source where else have you heard this and they'll go ah I've been hearing it from a lot of different people well you're hearing from a lot of different people they heard from one source that are that are passing it around so let's get that myth out of the way as far as right now is concerned there is no there should not be a big scare for using crickets if you go to your local pet store if you go to a local pet store it's one of these like fly by night ones where they're taking horrible care of the crickets and they've got like a bunch of dead ones in the bottom of the bin and they're pulling up half dead crickets and stuff yeah i don't know if i'd do that because yeah i could definitely see bacteria being in there the possibility of you know something undesirable getting on the cricket but if you go to a place where they got clean healthy cricket cages and they got crickets go ahead and use them they're great feeders i will tell you i have and i will say this i have never had a spider refuse a cricket i've had them refuse dubia roaches i've had the b-lats or next my next favorite choice those usually run around but sometimes they'll hide i've had situations where i pulled up some moss like the other day i went to feed one of my dalamides species and i pulled up the moss and there was a bunch of crickets hiding under the moss that i thought the spider had already eaten they were just they're good at hiding but crickets never had an issue with now I'm looking at the time of this so much for my half hour podcast this morning. I swear to gosh, every time I've had it in my head that I'm going to do a shorter podcast, it ends up being one of the longer ones. And I think this is part of my whole meandering on in the beginning. But we're getting to the last two on this list. Again, I'm going to, before I tend to get the end of the, the podcast and I forget to reach out, but if anybody has other ones, let's keep this list going. If anybody has other myths they've heard pop up, these are the ones I can think of off the top of my head and ones that I encounter rather often in my communications with other hobbyists, but if you guys have any other ones, please share them. I'd love to revisit this because I think it's something that, you know, for those of us who've been in the hobby for a while, it's fun for us to kind of go through, oh yeah, I know that one, I know that one. For those that have it that are listening to these podcasts, and I am getting a lot of new hobbyists that are listening to the podcast, which is fantastic, this is all new to them. So they're going through and go, man, I, I had no idea. I'm glad I heard this here now. Now I don't have to worry about that. So the next one, ideal temperatures. It's a myth. It's a myth. I, I, I'm sorry. It's Can we... <laughs> Can we finally agree that we don't need ideal temperatures? I just I bring this one up because I can't tell you how much 
how many times I'll get contacted by folks who are like, hey, I love all your stuff. I saw your video on this. And they'll start by going, I have it at the perfect temperature at 84 degrees. Well, if you're listening to my stuff, if you're watching my videos, if you're reading my articles, you didn't get that from me. Is it good to keep them? Is there a certain temperature range that we should probably try to keep them in? Yes, I think they do well. And I talked about this winter, the fact that my tarantulas, because we had a situation with the heat not keeping, I have that fixed. I have a backup heater now that keeps things right where I want it. But we're having situations where if it got super, super cold, my garage, the tarantula room is over the garage. The heat is kind of secondary to the main heat in the house. So it heats the house first. And if you can't keep up with this one, so be it. So the temperatures sometimes here were dropping for a few hours into the 60s. They were perfectly fine. Everybody continued to mold. I had a bunch of molts over the winter, no issues whatsoever. I also shared that back when I first started keeping that my tarantula room would often hit the mid to high 60s in the wintertime. And that's where I had my, for example, back in the day, it was the Avicularia versicolor, the Carabina versicolor now, which is one of the ones that you thought that a lot of folks will say have to be kept a little more warm. If your temperatures are in the, you know, mid to high 60s or so, you should be quite fine. You may just get slower growth rate. And that's what we talked about earlier with as far as power feeding. The higher temperatures, if you naturally have higher temperatures in your tarantula room, you will probably get faster growth than the guy that's keeping them in the low 70s, high 60s or so. That's absolutely fine at those temperatures. You don't need to have add more heat. I think the problem is, and there's no think the problem is, we know where the problem is. People examine where they come from in the wild. They see the tarantula is exposed to high temperatures and they think those are the ideal temperatures. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one because we've gone through this many, many times. We all know the fact that saying something is a temperature that somebody or something lives in is a lot different from saying that's an ideal temperature. We talk about the fact that there are places where these tarantulas come from where it can hit 110 degrees. People will see that and go, oh, this spider needs it super hot and overlook the fact that the spider is hanging out in, you know, a nice cool burrow where it's like 65, 67 degrees. I forget what the actual number is. So we need to expunge this phrase, ideal temperature, from the hobby. I'm hoping it would be nice if someday, I don't know if it'll happen, it's kind of a pipe dream, if somebody would actually would do some type, and I don't, it, it's unrealistic because there's so many different species from so many different regions, from so many different humidity levels and temperature levels and burrows, all that stuff. But it would be kind of cool to hear scientists study, is there a sweet spot? Is there like 82 degrees will give you the best growth and anything above that, you're not getting any extra growth. That's what we'd have to have to be able to see ideal temperatures. So that would involve, obviously, a lot of different spiders kept at different temperatures and try to see, is there a sweet spot where if you keep them at 82 degrees all year round, you are going to get the absolute optimal growth out of your spiders. You will see them mature, healthy, and to healthy adults in the shortest period of time, not you know over the top, short, but the point where they're growing a lot faster than, say, if they're kept at 70 or whatever. But then you got to wonder, like the other thing I'd like to look at, so the ones that are raised in warmer temperatures, do they live longer? Do they live shorter than the ones that are, they take a little while to get to that point? I don't know. But to say with all the different species out there, the different climates, the burrows, the everything to say that we can go, all right, the ideal temperature. And I've had people tell me, oh no, the absolute temperature, ideal temperature is 82. The absolute ideal temperature is 84 degrees. That's no, it's not. It's not. We can't say that for everything. And there are spiders out there that don't like it that warm. So what do you do for those? So we need to get rid of that and just start talking about the fact that they are very adaptable and they do quite well in those lower temperatures. And the reason why 
that can be such an issue, and I've explained this ad nauseum, is the fact that people will see these ideal temperatures on care sheets, and they will think that when they bring their spider home for the first time and their apartment suddenly hits 69 degrees, they freak out, they start putting candles next to You should hear the stuff I've heard people try to do to warm their spiders up because they're afraid it's dropped one degree when the spider isn't even registering it. You know, the kid had one person buy a bunch of heat packs from a local convenience store and tape the heat packs around the enclosure. They put a heat a mat underneath because it dropped down to 69 degrees, and that's just silly. They're going to do just fine, especially if it's for short term. So the ideal temperature thing, again, we talked about with these myths that it was going to come down to ones that could actually be doing more harm than good. The reason why I include this is because people that try to hit those ideal temperatures that they read about are often doing more harm than good with their spider because they're subjecting them to extra heat sources that could actually be a health risk for them. So ideal temperatures, huge myth. There's no ideal temperatures. There might be, you know, we might be able to all agree that if they're kept in the mid to high 70s, you're going to get faster uh, growth out of them. But to be able to nail down a precise temperature, I think at this point is silly, but I'm all ears if somebody ever does an experiment to find that actual sweet spot. Okay, we're down to the last one on this list. And people that have listened to, they watch my videos, listen to my podcast, read my articles, they'll know this is always a topic that's near and dear to my heart because I spend a lot of time trying to get people to see these animals as beautiful and unique and useful and fascinating and not to be seen as the eight-legged, creepy, crawly, bloodlust-filled killers that media often portrays them as or that people often fear them to be. So my number one, and I don't know if it's number one, but it is one that I've spent a lot of time focusing on, is the myth of the aggressive tarantulas. And I'm sure every time I do this one, I get some flack. Somebody will come on and go, oh, I have a spider that, oh, I don't want to hear it. I have, I'm just say, and I don't want to be closed-minded because could there be aggressive spiders out there? I guess, but I see, and I've explained this before, I see aggressive as something that's going to go out of its way. I see aggression as, and, and I had somebody come in before, well, it's defensive aggression. No, 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 I'm not going there. When you say aggressive, I'm talking about people who feel like they're spiders. I've had people tell me, I want to get an OBT, but I've heard stories that they'll chase you right across the floor. I want to get this species, but I heard somebody said it jumped. Uh, I, somebody told me they had a piece of etheria that their friend had that came out of the cork bark tube, jumped out of the cork bark, t- bark tube onto the guy's shoulder and tried to bite him. And I just don't believe it. I mean, could it? I guess it could happen, but If you keep spiders, I've been doing this for years. I've been waiting, waiting for somebody, one of my species, one of my specimens to prove me otherwise. I found that if they are comfortable and if they have a place to hide and if they are situated correctly, you either have one or two things. You have a skittish spider that completely, that quickly bolts to its burrow. You have a spider you never see, or you have one of the pet rocks. It just sits out there. They don't care anyway. I love the pet rocks. You know, they don't really care. Sometimes you get a little flash of a threat posture, but I can't tell you how many, like, threat postures I've received where the fangs aren't even bared. And sometimes you see the pictures like a really upset OBT. We'll have the fangs out. They're grinding the fangs. You can see venom dripping. That's an animal that is absolutely telling you, come one inch closer and I'm, I'm going to attack. But again, they're not usually that aggressive. I, I want to put that term out there. They're defensive. We did the whole thing about tarantula intellect and tarantula feelings. And we did talk about the fact that they are hardwired to respond to certain stimuli in their environment. And one of them is if they are threatened, they are going to create a display. So what's going to happen? You get a spider that's threatened. My OBT was out the other day. I tried to get a good picture of her because she was sitting right out in the open. I carefully opened the front of her enclosure and she calmly turned around and crawled into her, her web burrow. 
and that was it. I couldn't get a picture of her, but she didn't attack. Her first response wasn't, oh, it's open. I'm going at your face. It was, okay, he's coming. I'm going to get out of here and hide. And that's what most spiders will do if kept correctly. I do feel like, again, that the majority of stories we get about spiders that are aggressive are people that weren't keeping them correctly, that are mistaking a, and we're going to use the term scared, even though we talked about the feelings, I don't think they're sitting like, oh my God, he's going to hurt me. It's more hardwired into this is a threat. I could be in danger. I'm going to defend myself type thing. It's a response, a threat response. That's different from a spider. Like I've had people tell me that they go to feed their their OBTs and they have them set up correctly. I see pictures. It's a good enclosure. They're deathly afraid to open the door because they think the spider is going to charge from its burrow and attack them. And that shouldn't be the case. If given the room, the correct room to hide and run and hide in the correct type of environment, they should go run and hide first. Now, every once in a while, I've opened enclosures before and startled spiders that were out and you get the threat posture. But again, that isn't, hey, oh, there's my keeper. I'm going to go kill him. That's, oh my gosh, there's something coming. There's been a huge change. Like, obviously, we talked about the fact their hairs are a sense organ. There's been a huge change in air pressure. There's a breeze. They're exposed. They're out in the open and they detect something's out there and they're throwing up that threat posture as a way to say, stay the heck away from me. Not, I'm going to jump on your face and kill you, but my instincts are telling me I'm in danger and I need to defend myself. So I really think, if anything, I would love to see, and I am seeing, I think I'm having... Even if I think about it just now, the I'm having more people contact me with using defensive, and I, I which is great because when I first started doing this, I can't tell you that's why it drove me nuts when people do like videos and stuff about the most aggressive tarantulas. It's like yeah, the most any tarantula can be aggressive if if quote unquote aggressive, which by aggressive I mean defensive if it's not kept correctly. The H. lividus is one that always comes to mind where people would keep the H. lividus. They'd get them from a pet store. They'd see this big, beautiful spider out on a couple inches of substrate, webbed up all over the place. This is awesome. They take it, put it in a shallow sterilite box, little, you know, inch and a half of substrate, maybe a hide, maybe not. It webs up. Every time they open up that thing, they rip up the webbing. The spider's freaking out because they think somebody's coming to get them. Yeah, you're going to get a really nasty spider. My H. lividus, when I have the mail, almost never saw it. And when I did, and I would occasionally catch it out and about, it would just go right to its burrow and hide. Female, almost never saw it. Every once in a while, I'll see a couple of those beautiful blue legs hanging out after a molt. She's waiting to get something to eat, but didn't see her all that much. And I have no bad responses. I rehoused them both a couple of times. No issues whatsoever. Peace Letharia, another species that gets demonized in the hobby. They're big. They've got nasty venom. They're fast. They'll bolt. They'll bite. I, the first thing they usually do is flatten themselves up and try to hide. It's They know they're naturally camouflaged. That's why they have those fractile patterns. They blend in really well with bark of trees, with cork bark. If you see them, they flatten up. Most of them will immediately flatten and try to hide. Ones that have cork bark rounds to hide in will go into the cork bark rounds. A lot of times you just pick up the whole cork bark round, block both ends off, move it into the new enclosure. No problem if you're doing a rehousing. They're not immediately trying to attack us. So I really wish the myth of the aggressive spiders would go away. I don't think it ever will because, again, we have a wonderful thing out there called YouTube. We have social media where folks love to post up like how scary their spiders are and play up how nasty they are. And look at this one. This is the nastiest spider. This is Satan spider because it's always trying to bite my face off because I gave it no room to burrow and it has an improper setup. We're always going to have people like that. Those are the videos that get the views because they are going to attract Folks that aren't into spiders, that they're seeing something that reinforces what they say about spiders. 
And then eventually a small percentage of those people will become interested in the hobby. And that's the information they've been given. I'm, I know that the OBT is a nasty spider because I've seen this spider, you know, flowing, throwing threat postures after this guy dropped it during a rehousing, stuff like that. Those are the ones that unfortunately we have to deprogram once they get into the hobby and explain, yes, I know what you've heard, but hey, check out what I've been doing for years. Look at my channel. You're not seeing aggressive spiders. Why? I can tell you exactly what, what the difference is between the two of us. And I don't do that often. I don't like doing that. I try, I don't call out different people, but if I'm, somebody comes to me and says, well, this person said this, I will, I will say, well, allow me to retort. Allow me to give my experience with them and try to explain to them that that's not exactly what they're seeing. They're seeing a spider that is not being kept properly as much as you may love this particular person. It's not the correct setup, which is why you're getting that behavior. So I love for it to go away. I doubt it'll ever go away. It's a huge myth. Those of us who have kept these animals, I can't tell you how many folks over the course of the years have come back and told me, you know what? I've been keeping old worlds for years now. I've always been waiting for that big, terrible moment where they're, you know, aggressive and dangerous and I've realized that it's all kind of BS that if you keep them right and you're careful and you you're careful during your rehousings then you'll have no problem with them at all and that's the honestly god truth uh, could you get an ordinary spider absolutely we should never downplay the fact that they can bite that the bites would be very nasty but I believe with patience caution and correct setups all spiders can be rather calm and laid back so that's my list of some of the hobby myths that we have out there, specifically hobby myths. Again, I, did, I cut out the ones that people believe about spiders. Those are fun, but not really, I don't think they bear much educational value, so to speak. They just kind of give us a giggle. If you have ones to add, please let me know because I can revisit this next podcast. If somebody has one that they've heard, I'm, a lot of you guys that are on the Facebook groups and on the Reddit groups or whatever probably hear more of these that I haven't heard, but these are just the ones that pop up repeatedly. In, in my experiences with keepers. So that will do it for this one. As always, you can find me on thomasbigspiders.com. You can find me on YouTube, which I do not have a video for this week because unfortunately the, the old dog situation did kind of put the kibosh in me feeling like posting a video up. So we'll get back to that next week. I have some stuff to put up. That'll do it for this one, guys. As always, stay safe and we'll catch you next time.